So bad news, Reed. I know you're already married, but if you were planning to go to Las Vegas, the company Authentic Brands Group that licensed Elvis Presley merchandise has started to issue cease and desist orders to several Las Vegas chapels using Elvis Presley as uh, the, the person that would marry you. We just don't want him marrying anybody or just any sort of pretending to be Elvis. I think they're kind of cracking down on anybody pretending to be Elvis. And many of the chapels are now switching to sort of generic rock-themed weddings. Like There's like a menu. It's like, well, Sammy Hagar's not here today, but you know Vince Neil is or Kurt Cobain. You go to different eras, like with uh, grunge versus the hair bands. Maybe a Peter Gabriel in your eyes or something as you come down the aisle. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 282 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. That's right. We're back live, Reed, after the Memorial Day week off that you and I took. We're back here recording live, and we're going to be recording live uh, for the imminent future. We got a lot of great interviews ahead, a lot of great stuff to talk about, don't we? We do, yeah. And uh, you know, here's to hoping this stuff doesn't get old while it's like sitting in queue. You know, so we've got uh, <laughs> we do we've got a lot of stuff stored up. For those that may be new to the show, welcome. For those that are repeat offenders, uh, welcome back. Thank you so much for listening, for your support. Touchpoint.health is the website. Over there, you can find a little more about the show. You can find more about Chris or myself. Connect with us. Check out other episodes. Dig around, all that kind of fun stuff. While you're there, you'll notice up in the top navigation, there's something called the TPS report. You will click on that. Give us your name and your email address. We will give you exactly one email a week. Well, most weeks. Uh, we do take off some holidays, but... I'm going to say over-under is probably somewhere around 45 emails a year, something like that. And all it is is just five articles to start your week. So five articles about the industry that you may find interesting as you sit down in your office getting ready to start a fresh week of changing the world of healthcare. So if you would, touchpoint.health, TPS report, and connect with us. Let us know how things are going. We're going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint. 
where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, since we've had a recording or two that we've done live since the conference that we were at recently, that or that I was at recently, and there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of talk, even within my health system, about the role of the chief marketing officer and, and our roles. What do people in digital, traditionally digital marketing do? And it's clear that just as our industry is kind of changing and transforming, the role of the CMO is changing and transforming, not only in our mindsets, but also in sort of the things that we do. And it kind of brought to light this topic today that we're going to talk about, about how health systems have to start to address these disruptions in our industry. And maybe that starts with the role of the CMO. What do you think? It probably starts with just the function of marketing and just in general, you know, we started thinking about, uh, you know, I'm preparing with my organization to kind of go through a, a little bit of a journey mapping exercise and not in the sense of like, you know, where the parking space is and the, you know, where's the department within the hospital and how do you know elevators and you know, all that kind of stuff. Not, not, not that, but just kind of the digital experience. A lot of the digital front door piece through kind of care delivery. And, and it's interesting to, to start thinking about, okay, well, who all does this impact? This discussion that we're going to have, who all does, who all needs to be in the room, and all of a sudden you've got like you know forty-one people on a, on a yeah, right? you know and you're like eh, I don't know, this may not make total sense, but and, and I kid a little bit, but it is it's getting harder to kind of figure out well who are all the stakeholders, right? That kind of speaks to the fact that marketing is no longer just siloed to what we traditionally were considering marketing to be. Which is advertising. Yeah, we are now advancing into doing things outside of that marketing suite traditionally. So by necessity, we, we have to start interacting with people. We have to start thinking about things differently. Let's talk a little bit about a, a recent blog post that a friend of the show, Stephen Magling, wrote. And he posted it on LinkedIn and kind of tagged us on it. And it, it was called, Healthcare Marketers, Do You Have a Disruption Mindset? He starts off by saying, you know, that healthcare until just a few days ago, he was kind of joking, was traditionally meant hospitals, doctors in white lab coats, patients waiting. And marketing has been kind of in the traditional spaces of advertising and, and promotion and maybe branding. But things are changing. And part of that change is coming from disruptions in the industry. In fact, he quoted Rob Klein, who warned at one of the sessions at the, at the recent summit, that retail is learning f- healthcare faster than healthcare can learn retail. And so that's kind of necessitating disruption. It is, but that's not really the only thing. I mean, I think it's easy to point to retail, you know, because we see it's the most visible piece. You know, you drive by CVS or Walgreens or the clinic at the grocery store or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. You know, it's not the only disruptor. He, he you know, he points out that, uh, you know, that's this kind of in this conventional, you know, healthcare paradigm, but that some companies, uh, he says, are uprooting the traditional hospital and replacing it with something far different. He names you know, things like Dispatch Health, MD Live, et cetera, but that there are some big drivers that coming out of this conference, he calls out that that are really driving this disruption. He calls it the great disruption, in fact, which is, I thought is, to coin his phrase, I like that. Think about some of the things that we are all facing with in this day and age. Burned out workforces, escalating labor costs, 
inflation, supply chain, but there's other disruptors as well that are happening. Yeah, I mean, in you know, virtual care is an easy one to point at, and there's a lot of stats out there from Press Ganey and and others talking about how you know people would rather receive care online, or you know they'd rather book appointments online versus talking to somebody, you know, things like that, right? So this this idea of kind of the virtual piece and what people are doing elsewhere in their lives, uh, they want it uh, as it relates to their health and and the care of their family and others that they have purview over. The mental health crisis, he points that out, the skyrocketing rates of drug overdoses and the inequities in healthcare, which we've talked some about on this show, even as it relates to things like broadband access. Clearly, there's a lot of disruptions. And notice none of those really sound like marketing, traditional marketing kind of disruptors. But there are things that we have to address when we when we kind of structure the way we do it. And, and he kind of ends this blog post with a really great quote. I'm quoting from Stephen, and thank you for writing this, Stephen. Disruption means a change to the status quo. And if the status quo isn't delivering all that we as health systems can do and could be, then clearly it opens the door to reimagining how we do things. And we're seeing that even in the role of the modern chief marketing officer, which kind of leads us to a second article, which is actually from Forbes magazine, our friends over at Forbes. Our friends, yes. How the CMO role isn't really dying, it's going through a metamorphosis. And they start off by talking about that the the quote-unquote modern CMO is expected to be a brand visionary a product marketing guru. I feel like this person connected with me on LinkedIn this week. (laughs) Brand visionary and and product marketing guru, but also an expert on new capabilities around things like data science, MarTech, lifecycle marketing, all pointed out by by Richard Sanderson. He's a leader of uh, Spencer Stewart's marketing sales and communication officer practice in, in North America. So again, data science, MarTech, and lifecycle marketing. And Sanderson points out that this is, there's an opportunity here to step up into what he terms the CMO plus role. Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay. So that's a new title. We have to start thinking about socializing in healthcare now, the CMO plus. That'd be great CMO on a business plus, card. Uh, <laughs> they've also got some really good docu-series coming out. If you yeah, to, yeah it's, a, it's a premium service, really. That's where the plus is, <laughs> comes into. <laughs> There's five uh, archetypes uh, that he points out. And so we'll, we'll go through those. The, the first one, and this is where the plus piece comes in, right? Like still chief marketing, but there's a another component to it, right? So the first one is strategies, so the chief marketing and strategy officer. So modern CMOs are starting to take new and unique approaches on how to use that in analytics as signals to really understand how to drive the organization in the right direction into more of a growth mindset. And that's uh, everything from product marketing to brand awareness. So I'd say if you had to pick one, and we'll get to all of these, but if you had to pick one of these that is probably like, okay, yeah, I've seen that before, it's probably this one. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this today, about the alignment between marketing and strategy are so close. And you and I have talked about the, the four Ps of marketing, price, product, placement, and promotion. Well, chief strategy... And chief marketing officers kind of cover most of those P's, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that does make f- for a nice natural fit. The second archetype of a CMO plus is one that 
we've also discussed a little bit on this show, which is marketing and experience officer. This feels kind of good, feels kind of, I'm, I'm okay with this one too. One of the major new areas of focus, they say, for many CMOs is improving customer experience, especially since it really helps to build brand and loyalty among our customers. And so that synergy is ultimately the connection point for the customer. While marketing relies on knowing the customer from an audience perspective and gaining their insights into their buying behaviors, the experience part goes beyond marketing and kind of extends into the the entire customer journey, if you will. So I get that one, right? That one makes sense too. Yeah. And experience officers have existed. And, and so seeing this kind of come together does, does certainly make sense. Next on the list, chief marketing and digital experience officer. So, so kind of the same. But as marketing experiences become more digital, so again, much like the last one, but now we're just kind of taking this slant to you know, the expectation of the consumer, the role of the chief digital experience officer or CDXO is sometimes merging with the chief marketing officer, driving the brand story further, developing personalized experiences, these digital touch points, uh, driving the brand promise and then driving incremental or attributable growth through digital uh, exploration and digital commerce, such as finding positions online and making an appointment. A lot of stuff you and I are working on, quite honestly, kind of falls in this realm, right? So this is where when you start talking about consumerism and the digital front door, that, that's where tactically a lot of this stuff would fall. Yeah, this one feels really good to me. I mean, if 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 this role was offered, that sounds like r- right in my and your wheelhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Marketing and digital experience officer. And I get that digital experience component is slightly different than experience. The next one is one that's new to me because I've never heard this before, Reed. Chief marketing and category officer. Ooh. Many companies are seeking to strengthen the connection between marketing and their commercial operations. So category management is really sales-focused, data analytics and insights-driven, and includes a deep understanding of frequent shoppers or users of your service. So it's almost like marketing and sales, to a certain extent, kind of combining those together. Interesting. Yeah. Now in healthcare, we don't really talk about like sort of the quote unquote sales part of of the house, right? Unless we're talking about maybe outreach to like referring providers and things like that. But what what are your thoughts about this um, this archetype? So I can see where potentially you could slip like call centers or contact centers kind of into this category yeah. a little yeah. bit, or yeah, certainly the physician sales and outreach or physician liaison, depending on what you call it, your your organization, uh, you know, could could fit in here as well. Category still is just a weird word to me. Like I feel like if I saw this, I'd be like, I don't understand what they do. We don't use that word a lot in healthcare. <laughs> no, no category. I'm chief category officer. (laughs) Anyway, so I may change that on LinkedIn and just see what people say. What is that? And then the last one, uh, certainly topically, uh, this is going to resonate with folks, but maybe not in the vein of like this, uh, you know, CMO plus type uh, discussion, but the chief marketing and sustainability officer. Hmm. Managing environmental, social, and governance or ESG issues and, and it's impacting CMOs, right? So 
when organizations build its brand purpose and brand narrative, so this is where I think the tie kind of comes in, right? That brand promise uh, and brand purpose piece that really helps to tell the story to employees in the world and like why we do what we do, why we exist as an organization. Now, I think in healthcare, it's a little more straightforward of like, why, why are we here? You know, it's not obvious maybe sometimes, but, but it is a little more apparent. Uh, but anyway, it's awesome to hear about the fact that marketing is responsible for articulating the why and for, for keeping it current. You know, there is a pull in the world of sustainability from employees who want to understand the purpose and being a purpose-driven uh, organization often falls in the hands of marketing. And, and so that's an interesting one. I'll be curious, like if we see a CMSO and everybody's like, oh, chief marketing and strategy, no, sustainability. It's like, oh. But topically, it makes total sense. Totally makes here, sense. Right? Yeah. And, and, and in my world, I, I find that our organization, our marketing organization, interacts with all of those people. Strategy, mm-hmm. experience, yeah. digital, clearly. Maybe not category, as it's called, but like sales and access, as well as sustainability. All of these things kind of feel, these are kind of natural, different types of extensions of what chief marketing officers can be. So it's interesting to see if we're going to kind of adopt that that disruption mindset, where are we going to spend more of our time as a chief marketing officer? Or do we spend all of our time in those different areas and those different places in our organization? Reed, why don't we do this? Let's take a little break. And then when we come back, let's talk a little bit about disruption that's occurring outside the retailization of healthcare, so to speak. And we can also talk a little bit about transformation and how organizations are are approaching transformation, because all of these kind of play into this new role of the chief marketing officer. We'll do that right after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Coming from the break here, uh, we're going to talk through a, a, around kind of what we're seeing and, and some things that, that really talk to this disruption piece, right? And uh, especially as it relates to retail. And there's also a really good interview coming up too, where we're going to also get into real t- retailization of healthcare. But let's start first, read with a modern retail article that we found. Yeah. Why retailers see healthcare offerings as a post-pandemic booster? Well, because everybody needs it. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, modernretail.com is the website. They start off by talking about this particular report that, that was released in June that indicates that 49% of consumers surveyed think that living a healthy lifestyle has become more important over the past year. At least in June, did they survey them first of the year? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> 
but, but so anyway, people have this idea of a healthy lifestyle kind of on the brain, right? Which kind of makes sense coming out of the pandemic or I guess where we, I don't know if we're coming out of it, but where we are in relation to, you know, kind of the early stages of the pandemic. When we think about that, right, living a healthy lifestyle, that's sort of the the health and wellness aspect or, or category, if we could use that term again, in our space. And we as health systems are from the healthcare space. What is happening is, is that retailers are starting to come into the market from many different angles to try to address this. Now, it's not to say that these organizations haven't been involved in healthcare lately. When we think of retail healthcare, you know, like CVS or Walgreens, they have been in healthcare market, particularly around pharmacies, right? Over-the-counter medications, doing flu shots. And even when the vaccines were coming out at, at certain points, even at the booster point, They were exclusively being done through uh, sort of that traditional in your community pharmacies. For sure. And that's an easy one. You can see the transition there, right? It it doesn't take, it's not a big stretch to think like, you know, why in the world would I see a doctor here, you know, kind of a thing, or why are they offering virtual care type options, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, again, it's not, not a big stretch, but they talk in here, they've got a stat back in October. They say Walgreens made $5.2 billion investment to accelerate the opening of at least 600 Village MD locations. So like PCP inside of Walgreens by 2025 and 1,000 by 2027. I feel like that's forever from now. It's like a Jetsons. Like, <laughs> then. I mean, Walgreens even be anyway. But then on the flip side, CVS, and you think about Walgreens and CVS is like the same thing. They're saying that the company plans to keep investing in healthcare initiatives such as broadening its virtual care services. Mm-hmm. They'll make some additional uh, capability-based acquisitions, they say. So again, a little bit of a different strategy there between Walgreens and CVS, but but certainly both forging even further into, you know, the kind of the provider side of care. Yeah, and there's others too, right? We know Amazon is coming into the space, mm-hmm. right, through their Amazon.care and sort of the virtual services and a little bit of a kind of a mix between what they know well, which is supply chain as and delivery of, of medication. Dollar General, we talked about that before. They're making inroads in the healthcare and the wellness space too. One of the biggest, most significant ones though, that we've all been keeping an eye on and had kind of bumps and starts is Google Health. And recently, a fierce healthcare article talks about how Google Health has recently hired FDA's former digital health chief to lead their global strategy. A gentleman by the name of Bakul Patel, who was the former head of digital health at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and his goal is to lead its unified digital health and regulatory strategy. This is what he was quoted as saying, Reed. Now, listen to it as if you're a CEO from a health system. The power of technology, when coupled with a unified digital health and regulatory approach, promises to transform people's lives. I want to continue to build a world in which we use technology to engage individuals, caregivers, and communities globally in care delivery enabling us to reach populations that have long been overlooked, marginalized, and underserved. That sounds really, really disruptive. And ambitious. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so, and, and then, you know, last little point on this one, some recent Google announcements show how they're, they're bringing online appointment scheduling into Google business listings. And so some people may have seen that, uh, you know, I've seen uh, some announcements from uh, Stericycle who has in Quicker and Yext and the others that, you know, really kind of have some inroads into GMB listings on, you know, Let's just schedule it right here. You know, direct scheduling directly from listings, which, hey, I'm all for it. Like, I don't need you to come to my website just to say you did. I I need you to go see one of my physicians. I don't care, really, if you ever come to my website. Uh, There's a lot of disruption, a lot of availability here of just like, well, how do we meet people where they are and make sure that they get to where they need to go? Because sometimes they don't know exactly where they're trying to go. Exactly. And Embracing disruption, embracing sort of this retailization is really how we in our health systems have to kind of transform to get there. Now, recently, I sat down with Laura Kriofsky-Reed, who's the Senior Vice President of Strategy at Pivot Point Consulting. And we had a great in-depth conversation about retailization in healthcare. We drilled into it a little bit and, and how that's really going to impact the industry itself and how health systems should start thinking about and responding to this, how that new CMO plus role can start to look at this disruption and maybe even partner with them as they move forward. So after this brief pause, we'll come back, we'll listen to that interview, and then you and I will be back to close out the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I'm delighted to have someone that's new to the show on, but I'm, I, I sense Laura from all the conversations we've had so far to date that this will be probably one of many times you'll appear on the show. And that's Laura Kriofsky. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited that you're here too. Before we jump into our topic at hand, I always like to have uh, a lot of people that are on our show to share a little bit about themselves and where they work and what they do. So would you mind giving a little brief background on yourself and the the company you're with right now? Laura Kriavsky. I've been in healthcare uh, and healthcare IT for close to 30 years now, and it has been a fascinating journey. I have worked on the provider side. I've worked in managed care. I've worked for startups. Um, all of this has really informed, uh, you know, my experience and my sort of broad perspective. Uh, presently, I work for Pivot Point Consulting. I lead our strategy practice where I work with healthcare systems, um, uh, both on technology, but more broadly on some of their strategies for digital experience, patient outreach, market growth, mergers and acquisitions. 
That's a, a broad experience, and you've kind of seen healthcare from many different angles. And I think that really helps to uh, kind of paint a picture from your perspective on the topic at hand today, because today we're going to be talking about something that in my you know 12 plus years doing digital in healthcare, particularly on the hospital side, it's something that we've really been top of mind over the last couple of years. And that's this concept of the retailization of healthcare. When we say that, what do you mean exactly by the retailization of healthcare? One of the things I've done throughout my career is just really focused on what's next. What's next in the delivery of healthcare? What's next in technology? Where is the industry going? And how do healthcare providers, healthcare payers respond? And certainly the retailization component of that is this it's really the notion of consumerism coming together with new delivery models to make it easier for the patients to receive the types of care in the settings of care that's most convenient uh, for them. And it has a lot to do with not only working inside the traditional healthcare delivery paradigm, but that whole model is being disrupted into new sites and new sources of care that five or 10 years ago, we didn't even think about. Now, when you talk about that, and, and you know, this, I, I understand this concept of how consumers are kind of bringing this very much a consumeristic mindset into the healthcare experience, something that's uh, over the last decade or so, I've seen that tremendously shift. You know, back when I first started, there wasn't much of this sort of self-guidance around how to choose healthcare. It was more about you go where your insurance company says to go or what your local provider is. But now more and more consumers are having this very much a mindset of they have choice. They have different ways to access care. Is that what you're seeing as well with the, the kind of the consumer mentality? Absolutely. And I think in particular, when it comes to sort of the retailization, I characterize it by being driven by what I would consider four vectors. One is to what you just talked about, Chris, it's the convenience factor. I want to go and I get healthcare that I want on my time and in a, in a manner that's very easy for me to access and to navigate. Uh, the second you know, driver of the retail revolution is cost because I am responsible for an increasing component or increasing share of my healthcare dollar. I want to make the best use of it. COVID also was a great accelerator of the retail revolution. I mean, did you ever think two years ago that you would get healthcare in a parking lot, right? You'd be driving through and getting life-saving medications in, in the parking lot of a healthcare system or of a grocery store. And then the last one, and I think this is really important, the last uh, of the four vectors is what I call complacency. Think about your a good number of your healthcare experiences over your lifetime. And in many cases, the, the actual experience, the, um, how you feel about it has been probably what I call, characterize as less than wow, is everything mm-hmm. from access to your health records to ease of making an appointment to just ease of getting into that appointment. In fact, uh, you know, it's not just you and me. It, a recent Harvard Business Review study found that 62% of people feel that the healthcare system is intentionally confusing. So once oh, wow. you bring forward, yeah, bring forward a healthcare model, retail healthcare that is designed with intent to be easy and convenient and streamlined, it is fundamentally a game changer. That stat 
strikes me as crazy to think about. 62% are thinking we're intentionally making it harder. I have in doing online experience design, I have introduced the concept of necessary friction, but this to me sounds like it's like even further than that. Like there is like a concept that we're trying to make it more difficult. That's just astounding to me. And I can, I get that. I want to, I want to drill in deeper on this complacency mindset, because I think the complacency is partly a result of how the systems themselves, the providers, the infrastructure around, you know, even smaller health systems to large complex ones, it just becomes very difficult. And there's a tendency for us to kind of shift a lot of that burden on the consumer, at least there was in the past. Now we're talking a lot about kind of taking that out, kind of removing the friction from the experience. Have you seen a lot of momentum around this complacency uh, vector that you're talking about? You know, I think this is the the one area that healthcare providers, the traditional healthcare organizations need to be most responsive in, right? Is this is where they can sustain and retain their market share by um, being responsive to this. You're going to find the progressive healthcare organizations really honing in on their digital strategy, on their on their patient experience in an effort to com- compete with the retailers and the, and the disruptors in the market. Yeah, I have found that even, you know, making one simple change of, let's say, for example, instead of asking for forms before you schedule an appointment to schedule the appointment first and then ask for the forms after, just that one simple change can drive up uh, patient engagement and and their experience overall. What we're talking about is a, a system that's been fragmented for so long. In some cases, we haven't even connected all the dots. Even small changes in that overall experience can impact that positive experience at the outset. Are you seeing more and more organizations kind of really taking a look at where those, what I call those high impact, high value parts of the journey are where we can try to improve them? Yes, absolutely. And they're doing it through technology, right? Um, And it's the patient facing apps. It's the portal. It is the mobile check-in. It's anything that can make the consumer process more streamlined and less, I'll say, disruptive and just, um, in some cases, downright painful, right? Between all of the forms and all of the runaround that you sometimes feel or sometimes have felt in, in healthcare experiences, organizations are really tapping into kind of our mobile environment and capitalizing on that. Yeah, I've thought a lot, too, that through the pandemic, we've kind of what we've done is we've empowered all of the healthcare consumers to become digital healthcare consumers. I I think it's partly, you mentioned the pandemic is another vector, right? To kind of drive us down this route, seeing all industries kind of convert to this era, this time when we weren't able to kind of walk around and interact with one another, that everybody took their business online. They started to make things more convenient. You could buy groceries in the grocery store. You could, you could, like you said, get, uh, you know, drive through care, uh, vaccine drive ups, those sorts of things that enabled this digital healthcare consumer significantly. And now we're, we're seeing that as the outcome of that, that's now the expectation of the new consumer mindset. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's very fair. And I think it's why what I characterize as sort of the big four in this space are growing so quickly. And, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about um, 
COVID and how it drove people online and just changed our experience around uh, so many things. I mean, think how much time we now spend on Zoom. We all, you know, three years ago thought Zoom was fine. You know, once in a while it was great. I'll just pick up the phone. When COVID hit, we all moved, pivoted very quickly to Zoom and it became a way of life. And really the same holds true for a lot of healthcare. When I talk about the big four, I think about Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. And while they're all approaching this retail of healthcare experience differently, you know, Amazon has really been able to capitalize on its platform to establish first its virtual presence, and now it's moving quickly into more of a physical delivery of healthcare. And it is happening, it's movement into the home per se, which is a little different than the CVS and the Walgreens and the Walmart, but Amazon's move into the physical home of patients is a little bit ubiquitous and we don't even really know what's happening. But think about Amazon just for a second as one of the retail players, right? You have numerous points of entry into its care delivery model. It has physical clinics, virtual services, home pharmacy delivery, you know, pharmacy um, prescription delivery. Now they have Alexa incorporating healthcare, basic healthcare, remote patient monitoring. And Amazon is now dispatching care providers for in-home services. Almost without us knowing it or even being aware of it, Amazon has permeated so much of the healthcare industry. As you paint that picture of Amazon, you are so right. I am a household with a number of Alexa devices in my home, and I'm an Amazon Prime user. And when they introduced Amazon Care, you know, about a year ago, I was like, wow, that's great. And to think about, you know, I was reflecting at the time, any Prime member would have access to this kind of pharmaceutical deliveries and, and telemedicine. But now they're moving into the home space. That is definitely laying down the gauntlet in this in this industry to say, we have understood the supply chain. We can understand virtual delivery. We can understand how to get into your home. Now we're going to actually dispatch people into your home. That's that. If I was in a health system or a hospital, I would be tremendously worried about that delivery model. I, I completely agree with you. And what has happened is it's, it's almost been stealth. Like we haven't even noticed it because it's it's just sort of like I used the term earlier, permeating the fabric of how we live. So I'm fascinated by this because I think it's going to happen. And the same thing can be said about CVS or Walgreens or Walmart. Five years ago, just just look back five years ago. Did you think all of these would be grow, established and growing at the pace that they are? Now, clearly COVID accelerated a lot of this. But this shift is happening so quickly and so organically in, in the industry, I think it's, I know it's catching providers by surprise. Yeah. Now, CVS and Walgreens, I, I kind of understand that model. And in fact, I remember, oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago before the pandemic, that CVS and Walgreens were trying to actively work as sort of like the pharmaceutical delivery model for health systems, partnering with health systems in local communities. And I remember they they even had a statement that says, you know, there's a CVS within five minutes of anybody living in the United States. Their physical form factor, I think, helps contribute to that. 
But one thing that I, I that struck me as a little bit different is sort of these what are they the the fast care or the those the small minute clinics right that they're developing in their in their organizations to kind of capture and almost carve off a little bit of that primary care delivery model is that what you're seeing with with those those two entrants? I mean, I think really CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart are all taking that model. Uh, a little bit different flavors of it, but. But certainly um, that is their approach is to really focus on two key areas in terms of delivery. And that's the digital, the virtual care. And the second is the primary care, which is taking volume away from urgent care and, and EDs and other more of the traditional models. Uh, but it totally makes sense, right? It's convenient. It's close. It's usually pretty affordable. For the consumer, it's it's basically frictionless. And, you know, those three organizations have all invested in a market-leading EHR because they understand um, both of the, the electronic health record, the importance of that, but also to have a really strong patient-facing portal or mobile capability uh, to uh, serve those customers, serve those patients. I'm just looking back at sort of the, the history of this, right, into your point point um there has there have been fits and starts around retail of healthcare. it's 10 or 15 years ago various organizations were playing with this and mostly it came from healthcare organizations the, the actual provider organizations wanting to get into this space um walmart in particular has sort of had some starts and stops um, i found an article uh, as i was doing some research recently from 2020 in the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine. And uh, there was a section in there that said, uh, Walmart is not a threat to urgent care. That's from two years ago. Just last quarter, Walmart reported $152 billion in healthcare revenue in Q4 of 2021, $152 billion. It is their wow. largest area of growth in the organization. That's how quickly things have changed in two years in this space. You know, I reflect back on, on, on CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart to a certain extent. They have an advantage here that other health systems don't in that they've been in the customer experience retail model for so long, they actually understand that retail consumer mindset. And I think that gives them a tremendous advantage to uh, to developing these experiences because to them they know right they are, they know what it's like. In many times when I was kicking off CRM at, at health systems many years ago, we were kind of reflecting back on these models of CVS and, and Walgreens and, and Walmart to because they understand the customer better by their purchasing patterns. They understand so many parts of the customer experience that much better than us providers. I would agree, right and. Whether it be the, the physical retail experience, like you get more of the, the CVS or the Walgreens, or certain, certainly Amazon has got the online experience of people completely figured out, probably more than you know, right? Isn't it scary when you're on Amazon sometimes and the things that pop up? And what Amazon is doing, I think, is unique in that it didn't start with a physical platform. It started with the sort of the online experience and is being then very strategic in expanding, you know, the physical experience into, I think, 20 markets in 2022. 
It's a little different from what CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart are doing, which is to really capitalize on their physical presence and expand that into the digital realm. So, you know, they're coming at this this opportunity from different angles. Another angle, and I'm thinking back to your four vectors that are kind of influencing healthcare. You mentioned the second vector is cost. Now, I agree with you that the cost on the consumer is increasing, but there's also the the other part of the cost equation, which is on the traditional healthcare providers. There is an extraordinary amount of cost built into the whole traditional delivery model. I think about primary care. Primary care is often seen as sort of a loss leader uh, for health systems, right? It's necessary. It's part of the funnel. It brings them in. But it's it's certainly not necessarily a profitable arm of the business, so to speak. I'm a business guy. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. I work in healthcare and I'm a business guy and I think about these things. Those are certainly parts of the equation. Then I think about Amazon, CVS, Wal- the, the big four, as you call them, right? Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart. To them, they actually have enough of the consumer experience that they can offset some of those losses and cost as well. So operationally, they also have advantage over us. One of the things, and primary care has, unfortunately, because it's so vital, primary care has been looked at from a business perspective as a loss leader. It's a different paradigm in these retail um, structures because they already have the physical space built out for other purposes. So you think about the mimic clinic, or you think about even the standalone clinic, these um, organizations like Walgreens and CVS are taking advantage of existing physical infrastructure to embed uh, sort of a lean model of primary care. They don't have the heavy overhead of the traditional health system which allows them, you know, which allows for them to deliver basic primary care in a very affordable manner. You're painting a, a realistic, but a little bit of bleak picture if you're working in a hospital or health system. Is is, is all hope gone, <laughs> Laura? I mean, working in a hospital or health system, should we just carve off our primary care and just give it over to the big four? Or what are some ways that we can actually start to ad- address this or, or embrace this new reality? Yeah, another great question. And um, I've had some fascinating conversations uh, around this recently. Um, this was a, kind of a hot topic at a recent a CIO boot camp that Chime put on. It's been dinner uh, conversation with a health IT policy expert and executives uh, colleague at a nonprofit focused on health equity, right? Did a lot of questioning about how this will impact the overall healthcare system. All hope is definitely not lost, Chris. <laughs> Certainly, there will be a need for specialty care and acute care. But even at the primary care level, think about it. In my first reaction to this was, this is really going to hurt primary care. On the flip side, if we really have a primary care shortage in the U.S., Maybe this is going to help primary care. Maybe more people are going to be able to get in and get the sort of first level of care they need rather than not having access to primary care, deferring necessary you know, services and ending up in, in the emergency department. So, you know, there's a lot to be, you know, to yet to discover around how this will impact primary care. Honestly, I think in the long run, it, it, may be beneficial to the overall sort of 
societal health. And in, in fact, it may not even impact primary care providers as much as we as we once thought it would because of this, what I call the pent-up demand. The demand we don't even know exists because patients haven't even sought the care out. Ironically, I was reading an article this morning um, and there was a quote in it from Celine Gounder, who's a senior fellow. She's a physician. She's a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And it was really around the public health infrastructure. But there was a line in there that just jumped out at me. And that is, the American healthcare system is really notorious for how it creates health disparities. That's one of the things that I worry about in the retailization of healthcare is that um, people's care will stop there. And I worry about this when you think a lot about in terms of health equity. On one hand, retail healthcare may make access to care easier and more affordable and more accessible uh, to patient populations. On the other hand, I you know, I worry that it's, uh, if it is disconnected from a larger healthcare delivery system, that these patients will end up with not having access to or having the connection points that they need if they have complex conditions. This is going to be a very interesting evolution of our healthcare um, delivery model. Yeah, it's going to put new challenges, certainly. And, you know, we we often within, again, speaking from a health system provider perspective, we focus a lot on how do we get referrals in from the right people. In this particular case, now it's developing referral patterns to corporate organizations who really have no loyalty, right? They could refer to anyone. Earlier models where they kind of map business to healthcare delivery has shown that there's been sort of more of a preference of like how healthcare referral patterns happen between that that for-profit entity and that that nonprofit health system on the back end. I think you're you're raising a really good point. That's a provocative but but important point that you're bringing up. Quite honestly, this component of the consumerism is going to co- come at a cost to patients in terms of the care coordination, right? So it's a little bit of a trade-off. I love the convenience. I love the cost effectiveness. I love that it's just easy. But when things get more difficult, the patient is going to have to either, you know, establish a, a primary care provider relationship inside of a healthcare system and or learn to navigate the broader healthcare system at that point of time. It sounds to me like you've been spending some time looking into the crystal ball of where the future may be. Are there any other things to, that that we should be considerate of as we look to see as this health system changes, other you know trigger points or, or market activity that we should pay attention to? Like I said early on, I've been in this industry for about 30 years and it is always changing and there's always something taking shape on the horizon. You can see that this model of the retail of retail healthcare isn't mature. We're still doing a lot of that storming and norming, and there's a lot of jockeying for market position and a lot of money flowing into it. I think part of the future of, of finding the value of this is going to be in making those connection points back to healthcare systems. I think part of the value is making sure payers and uh, incorporate these non-traditional providers into their networks, if you will. I think we're going to see a lot more activity in the home. And I, and Amazon is certainly geared 
for that to happen, right? That's that's what they've got their their target on. Is like how do we get into those patients' homes and become almost like uh, ubiquitous in just the way of life, right? So just as you go to the front door when your Amazon package arrives, you go to the front door when your Amazon provider arrives, and and you don't think twice. Overall, what we're seeing is moving beyond the walls of healthcare, outside of the walls of healthcare as we've traditionally thought about it, um, and. The forces I'm talking about here, the retail, the in-home care, obviously the digital experience, all of those things are markers of this of this movement. Gosh, Laura, these conversations are, you, you, it, this is just, I'm sure we could talk about many other topics and go many different ways. But as we close up today's conversation, you know, I think a, a number of the things that you said may want people that are listening in to connect with you online to carry on the conversation. What are some good ways they could do that? Certainly, you can find me on LinkedIn. And because I have that crazy last name, I'll spell it for you. It's K-R-E-O, F as in Frank, S as in Sally, K-Y, Kriopsky. And you can reach me at Pivot Point Consulting. So um, you can either go to the Pivot Point Consulting website, or you can email me at my first initial and my last name, Kriopsky at pivotpointconsulting.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really great conversation. And uh, I look forward to having you back on to talk about more uh, more changes that we're facing in our industry. Thank you, Chris. Special thanks to Laura for coming on the show. Great to have someone who's been on here exactly zero times before. So, <laughs> uh, no, it's it's good to get new voices, names. We certainly appreciate folks like, well, we mentioned Stephen earlier in the show and uh, a few others, uh, but, but it's great to certainly have her voice, uh, especially around a topic like this that is maybe a little bit new to some of us that have grown up on the uh, hospital side of the equation, maybe. Anyway, really appreciate her and look forward to maybe having her back in the future. Before we get to recommendations, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. We mentioned the TPS report earlier. We'd love for you to sign up for that. Keeps you up to date, not only with five articles to start your week, but also just some quick links to upcoming industry conferences and things like that. We'd love to know where you're going to be, what you're doing, what you're hearing, so we can connect in person. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about topics you're interested in, people we should have on the show, et cetera. So be sure to be re- reach out and connect with us. All right. Recommendations. What do you got today? Reed, you know that I'm a big Star Wars fan, and so it's very natural that I'm going to recommend the latest Star Wars miniseries that's on Disney+, Plus, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Have you started watching this, Reed, yet? I have not. Okay, so I'm a deep Star Wars fan, so I've... I've been kind of a very avid follower. I've been watching, you know, all of the the programming that's out there on it and read the comics and actually read some books when I was growing up and all of that. So kind of a Star Wars nerd. But even if you aren't, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series is just really great because it, it takes place, actually follows Obi-Wan Kenobi 10 years after the prequels movies but about 10 years before the actual ones that we know, like the new hope, right. Where, where he, he meets Luke Skywalker in this series. It, it, it kind of tries to tie those, the prequels to the, the main storylines together. It's great. Ewan McGregor comes back as Obi-Wan Kenobi, but even Darth Vader makes an appearance in the show played by no other than Hayden Christensen, the guy who played it in the prequels. 
Uh, he's reprising his role. And it's just really awesome. It's really fun to see. It kind of gets you back into that excitement of the Star Wars series. It adds a lot of grit and reality to it. And it's just completely well acted. We're only three episodes in. And it's going to be a small series. I think they, they plan to have only six episodes total. But halfway through, it really is living up to everything that you want it to be. If you are a Star Wars fan, either hardcore like me or maybe not so hardcore, just a casual watcher, and you have Disney+, Plus, I strongly recommend uh, going out and watching Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's a lot of fun. That's my recommendation. Very, very cool. Very cool. I'm also going to recommend something you can watch. It's not a television show. I'm a fan of comedy. Um, I think a lot of people are certainly, but I, you know, I enjoy stand-up comedy. I, I will tell you, there's a, only a few comics that, like, I enjoy their special, right? Like their stand-up specials, and and I think I've mentioned a few of them on this show, like Nate Bregazzi and and some of those. And but there's another guy that I like, and he got he got famous initially through uh, doing short videos. I guess on Instagram first or kind of TikTok and then some you know YouTube videos and things like that. But a guy named John Christ. Most people know him as doing the video of like, you know, parents at Disney World or whatever video. Oh yeah. Ago. Yeah. He's really, really funny and kind of the comedy I like, which is kind of more that observational uh comedy, you know, or whatever. Anyway, he just released a special and kind of interesting. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Prime or one of those. He actually released it on YouTube. Oh, wow. As a special, a, a comedy special on YouTube. And I heard him interviewed and he was like, you know what? I was thinking where would be the place that basically anybody could watch it. And, and um, so anyway, he, he chose YouTube. Now, granted he has, you know, 800,000 subscribers. It's not like he's got some unknown YouTube channel, but anyway, it's called John Christ. What are we doing? And it premiered uh, just a couple of days ago on June the 1st. Uh, but the description, it says this, from the frustrations of ordering at McDonald's and waiting in line at CVS, it's the same time this all backed around, to the perplexities of expectant mothers' parking spots and getting baptized in the Nile River, John Christ has been there to observe all of it and simply ask, what are we doing? Filmed at the historic theater, uh, the historic lyric theater in Birmingham, Alabama. So it's really funny. I, I, I find him to be funny. His videos were very funny, but his stand-up is good. And it's clean. You can watch it with kids and stuff like that. And uh, anyway, it's it's good. So if you're looking for 57 minutes and 32 seconds uh, <laughs> of, uh, of a comedy uh, to watch uh, or something to put on, like if you're you know cooking dinner or whatever and uh, you don't have to like watch it, watch it, but you can listen to it. You know, this would be something good to check out. So that's great. And you don't have to pay for it. You can watch it on YouTube. I love that too. I yeah, mean, yeah. who would have thought cool. YouTube is still a good, relevant video platform in this day and age. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I love it. Well, there you go. Another great episode, another great week. Episode 282 in the books. Uh, we certainly appreciate all the support. Reach out to us, rate, review, subscribe. That's still the uh, the best way that uh, we continue to be seen on all the relevant channels. So, uh, again, we, we continue to hear from from a number of you each week and, and really appreciate that. That means a lot. Uh, look forward to uh, continued conversations through the course of 2022. Let us know topics we should cover, all that kind of fun stuff. But for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. 
This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.